Welcome, welcome my friends to yet another episode of Is That Really Legal? with Eric Rubin. And today's guest is a guest like no other, uh, Joe Basile, who is a pastor, but he's not your average pastor. He's covered in tattoos, he smokes a cigar, he rides motorcycles, and he looks like not a man of God, but he, I couldn't be more uh, opposite from the truth. Here's a gentleman who doesn't use his religious beliefs to uh, dominate anyone, but he's really of service. And he's just a lovely gentleman who, you know, he walks the walk, is what I'm gonna say. But besides being such an interesting individual and uh, an unusual clergyman, let's say, he also is an author. And he has written a science fiction fantasy thriller called The Infinity Chronicles. We're gonna talk about that. He also uh, has been on television using a combination of science and religion. I'll let him talk about that. He's a person of faith in action, which I really dig. And I just find him a refreshing, uh, a breath of air, a breath of, Refreshing air? Oh my God, I've lost my ability to speak. But it was so fun to speak with him. And I'm confident you'll enjoy him too. And we talk about everything from uh, religion and equality and science fiction writing. I just, uh, you know, it's all really interesting. And I know you'll find him entertaining. So I'm glad to have this conversation with him and make it available to you. What's also available to you are Abe's muffins. And they're refreshing because they taste great, but they don't kill you because they're made with great stuff and no allergic stuff. And if you're worried about your kid's health or they have certain food issues, you can buy these for them. They can enjoy them. And you can even enjoy them. Chocolate chip muffins, blueberry, lemon poppy seed. They make a coffee cake and a cornbread that will change your life. And they now have chocolate brownies that, uh, frankly, if I had them in the house, I'd be eating them right now and not be on this show. So it's a good thing they're not here, but hopefully they'll be here soon. Uh, so I hope you get to enjoy your muffins, and I know you're going to enjoy this conversation right now with Joe Basile. So have a listen. Hi. Welcome. Welcome to... Is that really legal with Eric Rubin? And um, it's really nice to meet you. We've never met before, but yeah. thanks to your publisher, um, they asked for me to talk to you. What's really interesting to me is that um, we we had a couple of emails back and forth really quickly. Yeah. And you are not in any way really involved in the law, but... That's what I was like. I'm surprised by this, but I'm like, okay, I don't really know. I'm... A but my family, I have family lawyers in my family, and but I'm like, I don't really, you're from New York. I know that. I looked, uh, I looked you up. So I lived in New York. I lived, you're from, uh, you lived on Long Island. So did I. Right. So, where, where in Long Island? Uh, Bayshore. Oh, okay. Been there Just for times. a year. Just for a year, right across from Fire Island. Oh, sure. So what, what's interesting to me is uh, your background involved some unsavory uh, involvement with the law 
before yeah. you found your life's mission. That's true. I, I, that's the part I could speak well into. I know that part very well. I know how to break the law. <laughs> well, I, I don't think anybody listening needs any encouragement or coaching. Right. And, and I know you don't want to do that. But what I thought was interesting was that um, but I, I've been in publishing for a long time. I have a lot of clients and friends who are involved in publishing. And your publisher is down in Australia, right? Yeah. Yeah. And um, we're at a time when people want to hear marginal voices. And when they think of those voices, they think women, people of color, LGBTQ. And what um, I am unfamiliar with, and I'm going to guess a lot of my listeners are unfamiliar with, is a certain spiritual element in publishing. Yeah. I'm from, look, I'm familiar with a lot of Buddhist teachers mm -hmm. and a lot of people who are in, involved in what's called mindfulness, mm -hmm. some of which I'm not a big fan of, some of which I think really know what they're up to. But that's not for me to judge or tell people what to read. It's more like I don't run into a lot of Christian writing, and I know for instance, just in the romance genre, there's a variety of types of Christian romances from everything from at the end, they hold hand and Jesus smiles right. all the way to a lot more intimacy, but also a lot more involvement with God and Jesus and things like that. Yeah. Uh, and please don't take anything I say in any I'm a little nervous. I don't want to be derogatory in any way. I'm just trying to get to the bottom line of things. Hey, that's very sweet of you. I've, I've super thick skin. I'm from Chicago. I'm from a <laughs> family. Believe me, I'm not. And, and it wasn't always this way for me. So I wasn't always into spiritual things. So for me, anytime somebody's talking about it, I'm like, yeah, like, even if somebody came at me, some different people have come at me and said, you know, I think this is stupid. I'm like, I see that. I did too. Like, to me, it's not like, I'm not like, how could you? I'm like, no, nah, I get it. Like that. <laughs> that makes sense. You know what I mean? Like I tell people all the time, we believe a guy rose from the dead. We're either insane <laughs> or he's God, but you got to be open to be the fact that we're insane. You have to be open that that's a possibility. And I tell people all the time, like we believe some crazy stuff and, uh, and that's, you gotta, you gotta be open to that. People open to people at least thinking it. Well, what I like already is that you, you know, a lot of people have already strong points of view about what a certain religion is, what it represents, who people affiliated with it are. And just like anything else in our culture currently, people aren't listening with what I would call true listening, which is they're not listening, setting aside their point of view setting aside their prejudices, which we all definitely have, which have helped us survive to some degree. Mm -hmm. They're not listening to hear something from the other person's point of view. They're either disagreeing like, oh yeah, I know what this crap's about. Or they're agreeing like, oh yeah, I, that's, but neither of those is listening. <laughs> I got the yeah, 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 is when I lived in LA at the time. Yeah, 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 I'm like, you haven't heard what I said. Okay, that's cool, no problem. You're, yeah, 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 you wanna talk? Just tell me to shut up because you want to talk. I'm cool. A lot of the yeah, yeah, yeah is definitely to dismiss or let's get on with it. I Because what this moment right now isn't it for right. a lot of people. I get um, So I, that's a whole background of what interested me. That and the fact that a lot of people love science fiction and fantasy. 
And the book that you have released recently is part of a trilogy that is science fiction, fantasy, but also based in your religious beliefs. Yeah. So I, I just think that's interesting. And seeing all of that and then doing a little research on you online, I was like, let's have a chat. So here we are. So, so why don't you let people know, in fact, where you said you're from Chicago, you like me you have some you have a lot more tattoos than i do i yeah, won't show them okay, i like it yeah <laughs> but uh but you don't look like the image of a pastor that someone like myself thinks of when we're told pastor you know when someone says dog in your head you think german shepherd docs whatever picture shows up pastor i'm looking at you uh people can't see because this is audio only but i'm looking at you you know you have a top knot you're, uh, you are in a backyard somewhere that looks lovely with Mexican tile roofs and you have a lot of ink. Yeah. And, um, and I've heard you talk about it and we can and enjoy, my, and enjoy a nice cigar while we hang out. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, how does, how does this happen? I, I know you've answered that question probably a million times and you might have a good short answer for it just for those people who haven't, who have no familiarity with you. Yeah, I'll keep, I, I'll, I, I love, you know, it's funny, as even though I answered a million times, I always kind of shape it to who I'm talking to too, right? I'm always like, you know, thinking like, cause everything's nuanced, right? Like everybody's like, I tell that story all the time. I'm like the funny part is you could tell it from 40 angles. If you kind of mm -hmm. just moved a little bit to the left in your mind and looked at it from that angle, you're like, oh, that's also this. So even in this instance, um, I would say it like this, is that I learned that God's, working on helping me be the best version of me. And as opposed in the beginning, I was trying to be the best version of someone else as a pastor. So it was like, this is what they look like. I was living up to someone else's perception of that. Um, and, and believe me, highly rejected for doing this. Like this is not like part of the consequence is when you don't meet people's perception or expectations, uh, they, they don't even give you a chance. You know, they're just kind of done with you. They're like, well, what can you offer to me? Look at the way I literally just three days ago, uh, so I co I co senior pastor a church with a buddy. Another thing we're doing that's not normal. We thought we should do this together. We love each other. We're brothers. This would be fun. Totally not normal. Really weird to do that. Right. Uh, but we've enjoyed it. But so, anyways, even then, somebody came into my co senior pastor because he's more normal than I am. <laughs> and, uh, whatever that means. Yeah, whatever that means. Uh, and they said to him, they said, you know, Joe could really do a lot more if he would just t tame all that stuff down. And of course, my, my friend down said, notch, oh, you're talking to the wrong guy. Don't talk about my friend like that. So, and it's his friend. But it's funny is here I am doing this 20 years later. That's still a conversation is like, hey, if Joe would stop being himself, this would be more effective. And I basically, <laughs> that's pretty Sorry. much what they're saying. I'm like, ah, that's, and I, I, I always tell people this, listen, I tattooed my hands. I'm not a great decision maker. Let's just, let's just get this on the table. So the fact that people want to question whether or not they should listen to me is wise. You should sum it up and go, <laughs> I don't know, maybe not this guy. So you can't, I can't bring it. I always thought when some people are like offended, like I have some other, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not in the tattoo culture, but people always assume I am because I have so many tattoos and they're like, yeah, I went somewhere and they judged me. And I'm like, Hey, we tattooed like really obvious places. Like we've kind of, we've, I used to say to people, if you say something privately and somebody judges you, I say, that's not cool. If you say it from a stage, 
you've invited a conversation. You tattoo your hands somewhere. If you're being honest with yourself, somewhere you've invited a conversation. Right. So, and you, you've made a life decision when you're doing your hands or your neck. Yeah. You've made a decision. Either, either you're the most unaware person and just like, who would ever question this? Or, or, or you're, you're and I, I'm just neither of those people where I'm just like, listen, I have to be open to these conversations and not take it as judgment and take it, even if it is, I have to take it more as curiosity. The judgment's curiosity with, uh, and jumping to conclusions. So I could just say, okay, you jumped to a conclusion, but let's just go with your curiosity about it. What I, what I like um, is the congruent nature of what you're talking about, that this, what, what I am, and I happen to have um, some really good coaches that I really like because they are no different in any situation. Right. Whether they're doing an interview like this, or they're doing a seminar, or they're making lunch, they're always them. Mm -hmm. There's no, there's no other persona. Right. Um, and having been a performer and being an attorney who goes into court, there are times when that's really useful to me. Yeah. But I think when we start talking about these kind of issues where you are reaching people on a personal level and you need to hear people in crisis, people who are looking for guidance, man, we're, we're all smarter than we think we can smell out those inconsistencies in a heartbeat. So we either ignore them because they're inconvenient or our BS detector, just the needle goes right into the red. It really does. And it was funny is because, so I, I'm a performer too. I mean, like, so I, obviously I write, I love the arts, I like story and I had to learn. It wasn't intuitive because my favorite preachers, which wasn't that much, by the way, I was never the, I was never the church guy. Sounds funny, I'm a pastor. I was always the, I was always the Jesus guy. I like Jesus, like the Bible. In fact, when I first started reading the Bible and I went to my first church, I was like, I literally would open the Bible and be like, hey, why aren't these the same? <laughs> this place kind of sucks and Jesus is awesome. <laughs> no, I don't get it. Like, you guys are kind of terrible. It's and kind like, of like you love right. the food and then you go to the restaurant and it looks like crap and you're not, like you're like, why would I eat? this amazing food in this space. I don't want to eat here. Just, you know what? I just did not think about it. That's what we do, right, at church? And I was like, okay, don't look at what you're seeing. Just, <laughs> this is awesome, and the Bible's great, but don't look around. Whatever you do, keep your eyes closed. So, yeah, I had that kind of that same deal with Jesus. I was just like, yeah. Plus, you're in, a, you're in a profession. I almost said business, and, I, and I'm sorry, but I think that, the reason I almost said that is because a lot of people are in the God business. They're in the Jesus business. They're in the something business as opposed to the profession. I and, agree with you, but I must completely agree with you. <laughs> and I think that's that, sad, but it's a hundred percent true. And I think that puts you at, look, at some kind of disadvantage when you show up because it's just like someone who really earnestly sells life insurance. They see the importance of life insurance for a young right. family, whatever, and they just want to make sure people are taken care of and they make an okay living making sure those people are taken care of. And they come to a place where people have had very bad experiences with life insurance salesmen, say. I tried to pick something as innocuous as possible. 
I mean, I feel like you're in the same situation. You know, you have television preachers who, you know, talk about the Lamb of God and the importance of peace and also taking care of the poor. And then they jump on a Learjet <laughs> or, and by the way, you can be wealthy and take care of people, but there's a talk about not being congruent. There's a yeah. lot of, um, so you run into that sort of thing. Uh -huh. um, and then, uh, you know, everybody on the planet has a point of view about the center of your religion, whether they love him, they just dislike him, whether they think he's misunderstood, whether, you know, they have a strong point of view of Jesus yep. Christ. Yep. No, I grew up Jewish. I had no point of view of Jesus Christ. I did a lot of research. I have my own opinion that I actually really love some of the things I read, but some of the people who are his fans are a little hard for me. That's Gandhi's perspective. I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> Say that again. That's Gandhi's perspective. Gandhi's perspective was, so, so Gandhi uh, was investigating Jesus before he became Gandhi. He's living in South Africa. He goes to go to a church and they wouldn't let him in because he wasn't white. And, uh, and he literally yeah, this tells this great story. And I, don't even, I actually don't want to tell a story because the, the, literally the language is so inappropriate, but it's an honest story uh, about what they said to him. And he pretty much walked away. And so later on, he becomes Gandhi. People are like, what do you think about Jesus? He goes, oh, I love Jesus. He goes, I just don't like his followers. Uh, and, so, and so I've told that story multiple times in church because I'm like, this is, a really, this is really a problem. And when I became a pastor, that, that leap from the, the Bible to church, I was trying to shorten it. Like, how does this become more like this? And it's hard because it's humans, it's thousands of years, it's institutionalized religion. I don't care if you're a brand new church planner, you're starting on premises already built in your mind about how things work, whether it's theology. So my family is Italian and Jewish intermarried. So, so I grew up. So crazy. Yeah. So, so, well, my family always said Catholic guilt and Jewish guilt work well together. They just, they just, they just merge well. So, uh, so I grew up with this very institutionalized version of Jesus from the Catholic side, right? He's this right. German guy with blue eyes, right? <laughs> Ned Nugent on a cross. With yes. And then I have my Jewish family, where the ex so my family is more Reformed Jewish, so there wasn't this anti-Jesus or anything like that, but more just along the lines of, but still, a predicated belief about him that was that was built a long time ago for them. So I came into these this scenario with really open conversations, like, what do you think? I mean, like, and I wasn't trying. I was just like, what do you think about Jesus? What do you think about this? And what's funny is both my Catholic family and my Jewish family both attended my church services. And when I went to uh, Israel, I mean, when I went to, um, when I was in LA and I planted in Brentwood, uh, we planted on a more of a Jewish premise of our church, even though I wasn't Jewish. Uh, and even the book I wrote is, uh, we talk about the Mashiach mm -hmm. and we, we use, and it's the church in my new universe is called the kibbutz, uh, not the church. Cause it's, it takes more of a Jewish leaning in Israel. Cause I think, and Paul's travels when he goes to Antioch and he was a Hellenist, it just started taking a very Gentile perspective. And so my universe, I say it doesn't, it stays, it stays where it should be. Christianity should be a sect of Judaism is how people should look at it, but it looks like it's something else. Because everybody, all the books written in the New Testament are all, the oracles of God are entrusted to the Jews. It's all by the Jews. Their Messiah is Jewish. And it just became this very Gentile piece. And I'm not mad at Gentiles, I'm a Gentile. But it's just like, it kind of lost its way 
in its perception uh, of anything. So. Well, it, it seems to me that the minute anything becomes a political tool, which is certainly something that all religions have become at one point or another, then you know you you lose control, a uh, control. I don't even know if that's a word, but it, it certainly changes things. You know, for all those um, Buddhists out there who grew up Jewish and read a lot of Pima Chodron and chant in a corner, they don't know a lot of them how many versions of Buddhism there are all around the world, and that some of those Buddhists are extremely violent toward, which is so shocking to me. Right. Uh, toward other religions, because I, I, you know, having read what the Buddha had to say, having read what Jesus had to say, I often just look and I'm, I get exhausted. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have trouble even getting into the conversation because I don't see any way out of it other than being exhausted and disappointed. I don't see how, so here's been my big thing with all the stuff going on with COVID and social media and all those things. I said, listen, I'm a pastor. I can't control what the world does. But if you're telling me you're a follower of Jesus, primary tenant is literally put others above yourself. So whatever your views are, you should have empathy and self-sacrifice and service for others. If you're a Christian, I'm not telling you what the world's do. Your, your perspective, you should walk in every room and say, how can I best love everybody in here? How do I need to, how do I need to uh, comport myself in a way that communicates? Because Jesus says, they'll know you're my follower by your love. And I always tell people that, I said, Christians often do that. So cool, I'm going to love you. I said, oh, do you not realize that love is filtered through the lens of the other person? So you need to love in a way that the other person says it's love. Not that you say it's love, because guess what you'll do? Tough love, <laughs> right? If you get to control what love is, you, you know, you get to say, this is love, and you do this, you know, and I'm going to- I love you by beating the crap out of you. Right. I mean, this is love. You just didn't, I said, no, you have to ask them, is this love? Hey, is what I'm doing loving? And I'll say something else, because I know we're talking about it. It's also, is this legal? But I was going to say, because you brought it up, uh, the fringe part of it, but it's been another big reason why me and my pastor don't talk politics at church, because I've, we've, I've said it a bunch. I've been watching pastors weaponize the church for political reasons. And I, and I said, listen, I, the reason I believe the separation of the church and state is to protect the church because I feel like that person is bringing, by bringing politics into the church is poison for the church. It's no longer about Jesus. And guess what? Now we have sides. Now that as opposed to for God so loved the world, for God so loved the Republicans, or for God so loved the Democrats, <laughs> or for God so loved the Tea Party, or whoever you are. You know what I mean? Like, and that's the reason why it shouldn't be in here. And that's when I see pastors taking stands, even in my own city. I'm not going to disparage them, but I'm not going to. I'm not going to be a part of that. Well, I think that you. What I like about what you said is you're not taking a political stance overtly, but I think when you say you're going to meet people where they are and love them on their own terms. It's a lot like what I talked about listening before. Listening is not agreeing or disagreeing. It's not your preconceived notions. It's listening from the other person's point of view. Loving someone is loving them from their point of view. Yep. So just as an example, look, uh, I, I identify as a super liberal guy and I'm in favor of equal I read, rights I for- I've, I've, I've followed you a little bit. I know. Sorry. 
I, I, I love it. My whole church is filled with, there's no political party in my church. There are multiple political parties in my church. It makes me honored. I'm honored yeah. that I, I'm actually speaking a truth that doesn't, that doesn't bleed red or blue. So I'm thankful for that. Right. Well, you know, what's interesting is my, my take on what you're saying is then, I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but I feel comfortable that if I decided to go to a service and I brought a trans friend, they were not going to get hassled for being trans. No way. Not right. in a million years. That, uh, so my daughter is, uh, my daughter is, my, my daughter, my two oldest children are gay. So, um, and so my big mission is, and I even told believers this, whatever you believe, listen, I, I'm not even telling you what to believe about things right or wrong, but whatever you believe, you need to know first and foremost that God loves them. And if you believe you want anything good for any person in the world, you should push them towards God's love and let God love them. That should be your mission. So and what's happened is, so the Bible, Old New Testament, the Holy Spirit's the convictor of sin. I said, people have taken his job. I'm like, I'm going to convict you of sin. <laughs> I can, right. You're sinning. And I said, that's not your job. What your job is, is that if you, and again, I was always just saying, if you're a believer, then everybody's best life is fully loved by God. And so every person walks through this door, you know, uh, and I'm going to use the pronouns. I'm going to everyone 100% love this person because God loves them. And if I'm not loving them, that simple premise, if I'm not loving them, then I'm a hypocrite because the Bible says, how can you love God whom you can't see and don't love your brother or sister whom you can see? It's impossible. Those are Jesus's words. Well, this is the worst segue in the history of podcasts, but <laughs> I want to go talk about your book a little bit because okay. maybe it's not that bad a segue. I think, well, first of all, for people who don't know, you also had a documentary on the History Channel. Yes. Um, and what I love, I haven't seen it, I have to admit, but I really want to, because what I love about it is you're looking for Jesus, uh, the physical, actual person, and I could be wrong about this, but you're looking for historical fact, and you're looking through the lens of science. Can you talk oh, yeah. to us about that? Yeah, sure. So uh, basically, is that it's centered around the Shroud of Turin, um, and the idea of the, the, we call them the person of the shroud, scientifically it's called the person of the shroud. Uh, you have to first establish whether or not you believe that's Jesus, so that's part of it. But what most people don't know, or maybe they know, uh, but the Shroud of Turin, the image you see on it is painted in blood. That's a blood, that's blood, that's not paint. It looks like paint, it's actual blood. So uh, the Catholic Church has allowed it to be tested a couple times. So we had a chance to get a sample of the blood that was on there. And what we were doing is trying to see if anybody shares mitochondrial DNA with the person of the shroud, which most people, a lot of people believe is Jesus. So that's kind of the, the goal. And then what we did is we went and chased down other artifacts to see if we can cross-reference through carbon dating or through DNA uh, any artifacts that we think to kind of support that. So I was the biblical expert taking us through the Bible goddess who's related to Jesus. So he has a cousin named John. He has brothers and sisters, James. And so we we're going through all these artifacts to see if we can cross reference to confirm that the person in the shroud is in fact Jesus. And it's all in the genesis. We were with uh, George Busby, brilliant man from Oxford University. Uh, and he basically said, listen, unless you have Jesus right here, you take a sample of his blood and you compare it, you, you don't know. We're, right. I always tell people, I said, listen, we're using science to shorten the leap. 
to see if this is true. Uh, and it was this amazing journey. At the time it aired on Easter three years ago, it was the most watched thing in the world that day, that Easter. Wow. And then the next time it aired, it had a bigger audience. It's been since translated into 10 to 15 different languages, plays multiple times around the world all the time. It's just, it's just still wildly popular uh, documentary. Uh, and so, so anyway, so that was the kind of the journey. My job was the expert uh, and I, I, my Hebrew professor, uh, this is so this is why I did this and this is something I've been teaching for years and I'm glad to see more people do this uh, is that a Hebrew professor used to say when people would talk to him about whether or not evolution was true and they would argue against or for with the book of Genesis and my Hebrew professor said this when I was young and I thought it was amazing he says he says you you're asking the wrong question of the book he says you're asking how Genesis is ask, answering who God he says, let the scientists answer how. He says, we're just asking who did this. And, uh, and so that really helped me. And from that point forward, I really saw a real beautiful friendship between science and the Bible. And so when we came together, I was like, man, because here's the part, I always think this is funny with people. People think, if you think something is true, you defend it. And I'm like, but it's funny is, and I love some of the Constitution, we believe these truths to be self-evident. We hold these truths to be self-evident. If, if you believe, if you believe that gravity is true, I don't need, nobody's defending gravity. Do you know that? You just tell people who don't believe in it, stay away from cliffs. Cool. Just <laughs> those cliffs. I said, for me, we, when things are true, you shouldn't be afraid to bring in science and all these other things, because if it's true, don't worry about it. Just no, do it. I love Einstein has a lot of spiritual quotes and you're not going to find anyone more in defense of science than Einstein who was arguably the most important scientific figure of the 20th century. But he said, God doesn't play dice with the universe. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. And, and he's looking, in other words, he doesn't believe in a random universe. He believed that there was a spiritual force. He was just seeking to learn more about the laws that governed it. Yep. But like you said, it's two different, it's, it's two very different, conversations and i like that those conversations can be parallel they don't have to cross each other out and you don't have to and you don't have to there's another thing i just did my cigar bible study I lead a cigar bible study and <laughs> I did this recently and i said we're going to practice disagreeing i literally did it did an hour and a half of practicing disagreeing i said we have we've become terrible at disagreeing Ugh. we need to be able to walk away and not agree and love each other not not walk away and never see each other again. Walk away and say, "Oh, I still love you." We don't agree on that. In courtrooms, in courtrooms, for us, I've been an attorney over thirty years. Much of that time in courtrooms, usually in the higher courts, when we do motions or arguments and we refer to something from the other side, we'll say, "Well, what my brother neglected to say, or what my sister put in her brief." Love it. And I actually really do love that. And at the end of the argument. I always shake hands and I'm not alone. Most people do shake hands, say, thank you, good to see you. There's a collegiality. Sometimes the people we represent, I've had people go, why did you shake his hand? Like it's because I'm, it's part of a system that I believe in. Because if we don't have that system, you go back to, hey, you guys, you each get a big pointy stick, fight it out. Whoever's on the ground, Right. A lot of blood on their face no longer owns the cow. <laughs> that's, that's right. right. That's right. 
How can boxers hug after a fight, but we can't hug? These guys literally punched each other in the face for 12 rounds. <laughs> and they hug. They give each other respect. Right. Respect uh, we, you know, it's interesting. The culture has really... I, I talk to my wife a lot about this. I love my phone, but I also know that it comes at a tremendous cost. Mm-hmm. And a lot of what we have done is we've isolated ourselves in plain sight. You know, I can take a five mile walk, which I often do here in Brooklyn, down by the water, put in my headphones, listen to a podcast, a book, some music. I try to wave and connect with people, but the truth is, None of us stop and chit-chat, especially now with the virus. Um, But I also, I live in an apartment. There's like 70 apartments in my building. I know maybe 20 people in this apartment building. I could see someone who I've never seen before. They might have lived here 20 years. They get takeout right to the apartment. They work out in their own apartment or they go to a gym. I don't know. Um, There's just such an isolation. It's very different. I, you know, I'm 58. I grew up in a suburb in Long Island. You knew everybody on the block. Your neighbors were allowed to rat on you. The <laughs> parents could whack you if they saw you do right. something stupid. I'm not right. advocating corporal punishment. I'm just but saying. But it's kind of funny. It's, it's family. World. There's community. And we've lost a lot. And it's become a very, very egocentric world, including things. I'm grateful for this. My, I can do my work anywhere that has Wi-Fi between my phone and my laptop and a printer. I don't have anybody who works for me. When I was a young lawyer, I had a pool of secretaries and there were paralegals and there was a whole industry that just doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that, I think that the way we're behaving toward each other is related to this. I love technology. I really do. And I don't think, going back to no technology is the answer. But I think that, well, what do you think? What do you, how do we find our humanity at a time when we really need it? Yeah. I, I, by the way, just an easy question, you know. Yeah, right, that's all, just to solve the world's problem, that's great. <laughs> you know what's funny is, um, I think it's empathy and personal responsibility. I think a lot of times legislation uh, is great. I'm, I'm for it. I'm, I'm very proud to be an American. I always tell people all the time, I said, listen, I don't talk politics as a pastor, but that doesn't mean I don't have political views. I'm just, I'm just separating. Uh, but I think, I think even as an American, as a pastor, uh, you know, I think a lot of times when I'm having these big conversations about what's going on in the world, people feel powerless because the decision is, how do I change the world? And I'm always telling them, I said, how do you change your world? I said, it's, you, listen, we all have a sphere of influence. And the reality is that we have to start there. We have to start with how do I, and the fact that you told me, you know, 20 people in your building is amazing. I actually think that was, I was super impressed. I barely heard what you said. I'm like, you know, 20 people in your building. I lived in, I lived in LA and like, I'm like, I tried to meet people. I couldn't even have a camera. Nobody wanted to talk to me. I couldn't even have a laundry room in the, in the basement. And that's where I tend to do my chatting with people. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Or we also have a common area in the backyard with some cookout stuff that, looks like uh, old brick ruins, uh, which is very nice. Um, All of this leads me to, you know, I I do want to talk about the book now because I feel like it's a good um, merge of entertainment and I don't even know if I call it education, 
what would you what do you think about the book like yeah, you don't I strike me as a guy who just wrote it for for a throwaway flop i don't think you do no, anything just no. to entertain it was a passion project it started as a movie that i uh was contemplating so here is it kind of goes back to some of the earlier things i was saying which was i saw problems i saw problems in the way that jesus was being communicated so uh early on so right when i became a christian i got a piece of literature in the mail addressed to me that i never signed up for the first week and it was from the jews for jesus and i did what every every uh guy i knew did i'm like jesus is jewish nobody told me that i was like oh that's ted nugent where's the so i just so i was like okay so it's, it changed the lens and how I was reading the Bible very early on. So I'm like, okay, so, and what it caused me to do is really fall in love with Jewish culture and just the story of how God's been working with the Jews for so long and all these things and, and, and the ups and the downs, it's not all wins. And I love that the Old Testament records all the failings. It's not just like, you did great. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, you guys really screwed the pooch on that. You know, and I'm like, this is awesome. And so... So I became a real fan of uh, history because, you know, the, the Bible is a historical book. It's not just a spiritual book. It's, it's got different types of literature in it. So I love that. I like grammar. I, I love all these different elements. So anyway, so I started thinking through every person. And of course, you can become a Christian. You're like, I'm listening to Christian radio, Christian music, watching Christian movies. I'm like, man, a lot of this stuff sucks. I'm like this stuff's really bad. And I'm like, why, why is it all so bad? And then like somebody's like, because, and then, you know, it's like you let Uncle Frank sing in church because he's Uncle Frank and you love him. And he's like, can Uncle Frank sing? Oh, no, Frank, Uncle Frank's terrible. Sing. <laughs> but we're going to let him do it. I'm like, and I felt like that's how they're making movies about Jesus. Like, oh, is this going to be a good movie? Oh, no, it's going to be a really bad movie. But it's about Jesus, so it's fine. I'm like, okay, I don't know really. Why do those have to be separate? So anyway, uh, so I started seeing all these movies that are like, what if Jesus came today movie? And I'm like, in my mind, I'm very analytical in my thinking, I go, he can't. You would have to take Jesus out of the picture for him to come today to have to recreate the atmosphere that's happening here. And because the world is influenced by his coming, you, it's, it'd be impossible. So I was literally just thinking out loud on a bus trip with some students. And I was just saying the same thing. And I say, you, I think you'd have to kill Jesus to try and tell this story again. And I'm like, well, then you'd need time travel. Yeah, I'd have to go back in time and kill him. But the person can't be affected. They'd have to have been not affected by his coming and going. So I just started working. This is on a bus trip. So sure. So for 20 years, I've been plotting on killing baby Jesus. That can be the quote of this. So I've been plotting to kill baby <laughs> Jesus. That may not be an honest representation of who you are. Okay. And by the way, I like, I like this as opposed to the classic, everybody gets high and sits around. And like, if you could time travel, would you kill baby baby Hitler. <laughs> right. But nobody says, would you kill baby Jesus? Right. It's, it's never happened for me. That's so, right. And, and I, I'm not saying you were high on your bus trip. I'm just saying that's definitely not something I'd heard before. But it is the kind of thing, let's be honest, the best thinking we do is sitting on the toilet, you know, standing in the shower, right. and on a long bus ride. These are great opportunities for and this. You know, it's the, some, I tell people all the time, I said, listen, when I start first church, I'll get back to the book. But I thought, how do I we recreate that hanging out feeling where it's community? Because those are the best conversations. They're not like these epic moments in a religious service. It's actually hanging around. It's after midnight, and you're just talking. So that's what this happened with the bus trip. So I get this idea. 
I write it as a screenplay. I wasn't a writer at the time. I had a friend help me and, and kind of, you know, help me figure. I wrote everything out, but I didn't know how to write dialogue or anything. So sure. it was a long journey. So eventually, after a few runs at it in L.A., didn't really get it picked up, had a couple shots at it. So I said, I am literally held hostage by whether or not somebody wants to spend ultimately probably $200 million on making this movie because it's sci-fi. Yeah, it's an epic sci-fi. This is not five guys in a room playing poker or or a little horror movie that, and you live in LA. So, you know, like you, I don't know what it is. As soon as people move into LA, they already know how to be line producers. They can budget out. Oh yeah, this film's going to be too long. We're doing an ultra low budget sag on this. Wait, wait, dude, you, you've never done a movie. I know, but I've been living here for three weeks. um. (laughs) I've been here. here. I, I know people. I just talked to this guy. Wait, you don't, him. That was another big funny one in LA. I'm like, I know so and so. I'm like, you've shared air in the same. <laughs> let's let's be honest. Right. Call him right now. Oh, you can't. You don't know him. Exactly. All right. Yeah. So uh, so I so I did the story and it comes along and so I ended up starting to write it. I didn't know I was a writer. I actually didn't. So I got some help beginning on. I had a had a ghostwriter help me and I ended up just really after that. I said this isn't my voice, and I went back through. And I realized I could write. I didn't even know I could write. I didn't, and it actually just started pouring out of me. And so I just started being like, so it was again, took my screenplay, fluffed it out, brilliant writer, but it's more prose and description. And I was like, okay, that's fine, but that's not this story. So I went back again. So I spent a lot of money to rewrite my book, but it it gave me courage. So I was like, oh, I can do this. So I rewrote my book uh, and that's what we, we came up with. And it comes out, and ultimately, I have this crazy story of, uh, it's called The Last Qumranian, and it comes from the idea of the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls from a group of people called the Qumranians from a place called Qumran, near the Dead Sea, uh, and we get the Dead Sea Scrolls from their caves, right? And it's the idea that they become more like the Amish, where they become uh, a closed society who live beneath the Dead Sea, become super technologically advanced. They create time travel um, and it's, it's supernatural. So I use demons and the devil and I use, you know, sci-fi and supernatural powers. So I have the devil possess a person, go back in time, kill baby Jesus, come back to the world set in Israel with the world completely changed. And then I launched the story here and it ends up being the last 10 days of the, the, the Mashiach's life. Uh, so the, the Messiah, Jesus is life, right. but it's not Jesus. It's somebody else. Jesus is right. dead. Right. So it's kind of like, will God stay silent? You know I mean, like if this were true, Jesus was the Messiah, would he do nothing if time travel happened and somebody killed him? What would happen? And I just played the story from there. What's going to happen? And so I play out this story uh, in that, and it, it takes all these different twists and turns. It's really fast paced. It's a lot of action because I like action. Um, so it's a lot of fighting and sci-fi and this other story going on. So I tell that story. And then part two of the book is called The Last Prophet, which is I just finished writing, um, is more along the lines of, so A- Acts, the book of Acts is the beginning of the church of Jesus. And so the book two is the beginning of the kibbutz of Jesse. So how does the kibbutz launch in Israel in book two, same sci-fi, even more supernatural stuff, um, kind of taking the spiritual world and giving it physical properties. So it's mm-hmm. spiritual principles that are true. I've just given physical properties so you can see them. 
Like, uh, so if love could have a property, not that it does in my book, but if it could, I was giving it a property. So that when you see it, you're like, oh, wow, there it is visibly. And it's more tangible and it's approachable. And I feel like we can work with it because it has a property like, oh, how does it work? What would this be like? And so I've just added those things in there, all with, you know, people getting killed like it's an old Stallone movie. You know what I mean? <laughs> Mixed it with these sure. very spiritual truths. Uh, and with the sci-fi, sci probably feels like the fifth element. You know uh, what I mean? It's got to be entertaining. Otherwise, nobody's going to pick it up. Nobody's going to stay right. with it. I, I did know that you had originally thought of crowdsourcing this project, but you are with a publisher. Mm -hmm. can, can you tell us how that happened? Yeah. So Publish Iser, uh, they help you. If you're able to crowdsource a certain amount of sales, publishers become interested in you. So... Uh, I sold, you know, I don't know, thousands of copies in my early, in the early thing, whatever it was. And then I had my option between 26 publishers and I wanted to go traditional. Uh, so I went with a traditional publisher in Australia. Uh, and I like, I, everything's by feel for me. I liked mm -hmm. her, you know, Michelle Lovey from, uh, Odyssey books just really liked who she was. Uh, and it's funny as she's, She's not like from my spiritual bend. Like she doesn't like no or Jesus. But I expected I expected something completely different when I opened up the their website. I mean, they have significant love poetry. They have children's books, and it all looks very good. And it's not a self-publishing house. It is a because I, I you know uh, I, I used to be a literary agent alongside being an attorney, and I still do work with publishers and writers. And there's a lot, <laughs> there's a lot of conversations about self-publishing and quote unquote traditional publishing and independent publishers. And that's a whole other podcast we're not doing, but I just wanted, because there are people who will be listening to this, who would love to know how to go from crowdsourcing to going to a publisher. I think you hit it on the, on the head. Uh, they hear these stories of people who sell so many independently published books that a traditional publisher will be interested but you know some people also self-publish they sell 500 copies then they try to get a traditional publisher involved who says you only sold 500 what makes you think i can do anything for you yep. it's a it, it's a lot of feel and art and craft and everybody's got a different journey that's the best way i can yeah, put it they do and the i pretty much thought for me because it was my first time writing that I needed a traditional publisher that was going to take the risk. And this is going to sound funny uh, for my own confidence. I needed someone to say, this is good enough to put my neck out for. Uh, I, I thought, I thought any, anybody can self-publish. And then that's not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not belittling. It doesn't make you good or bad, but anybody can. That's just a fact. You can oh, self-publish. That's accurate. And so I thought that's not what I'm looking for. And I didn't do this to make money. I did, th I did this to tell a story. And so for me, it's always been about telling a story and with a publisher, and I know it's, I'm not trying to be harsh. There's so much more respect, like where I'm able to get into places and bookstores. And right now I'm carried in every, from Walmart to Target to everything you could think of, I've all picked up my book. Um, and so it's, and it's because it, you could be killed. It's funny, somebody on, somebody on Amazon has self-published and sold a billion more copies than I have but they're not in those other places. Uh, and for me, I'm not about volume sales for making money. I'm about volume sales 
for telling a great story. I just love telling stories. And I really want to make people happy. And it's my joy to interact with my readers. Uh, and they're telling me how much they enjoyed it or liked it or it was fun. That is, that's the reward. I don't know. I don't know if anybody's ever wrote before, but that's the reward. You wrote something and somebody said, hey, that really touched my heart. I'm like, done. That's, that's why I did this. Oh, uh, I'm excited to read it because uh, I, I actually am going to. It, I, when I started reading about it, it sounded up my alley. Uh, especially at a time when I would really love to get away from reality as much as I can for yeah. as long as I can. Uh, I'm pretty busy doing a lot of other things, including this. So I'm, I'm grateful to get an opportunity to talk to you today and to do this. I'm curious, um, I, you ride a motorcycle, right? I did for a while. I just sold oh. it. It's only just temporarily. I took a break because I had a nine foot long fat boy, rigid chopper with a 250 back tire. This very aggressive younger man's bike. So I just, I'm just getting too old to ride something like that. So I, I just parted ways with them. I'm just more coping with the reality of my life. Are you, are you looking to get a shorter, uh, I don't know if there is such a thing, a middle-aged Harley, or are you thinking you're going European or uh, Japanese or what are you, what are you thinking? Only Harley. I'm, I'm that guy. <laughs> Do you like the sound? What is it about Harley's for you? It's the sound. It's the feel. It's the, the off, the, you know, the off rhythm timing. You know what I mean? Like just, there's something unique about that. So I'll probably will get a street glide, but then throw like the big obnoxious 31 inch tire on the front. And slam <laughs> you know, that's my way of saying I'm old, but I'm still cool. I think that I, I can relate to it. I'm not a bike guy, not even remotely. I'm not a fan of motorcycles. I just, because I like motorized things in general, I, I just collect information about everything. And so um, I would probably be the guy with the like BMW bike with two uh, hard cases on the side. But, yeah, I, I definitely not a Harley get, but also I feel that way about cars. I, I have a 2002 Camry because I live in Brooklyn and it's scratched to you know what, and I don't want to come out and cry because uh, I don't know, my, uh, my BMW 2002, I just got repainted or something and I, somebody puts a dent in it or, um, but I get, when I, I had a small Japanese sports car and it had a lot of mileage on it and rather than put yet another clutch in it, for a six speed, uh, getting in and out of it started to suck. Yeah. And you I had like to, tall. I can't tell, but you look like you're tall. I'm six, three. Yeah. I can tell like you look tall. Thank you. And I just couldn't, uh, between that and also being stuck in traffic with six speeds oh. and a clutch. Oh my gosh. But you live in LA, so you know, so Brooklyn. On the I, d I don't live in LA anymore, but I did. Oh. And that's when I mostly rode the Harley because you could split lanes. Right. So I, right. It just, I just helped during, everybody stopped in traffic and I'm just creeping along. Hi everybody. Going yeah, you're going 25, but it's better than parked. It's better than parked. <laughs> and um, so for me, getting the four door sedan with an automatic on one level felt like a surrender. But the first couple of times I got stuck in traffic and didn't have to use my left leg, I suddenly felt I was free. 
And also when I started to park and occasionally bumped into people to squeeze into a spot, yeah. I felt okay about it. That's, uh, that's awesome. What's funny is in Chicago, I, uh, when I lived in Chicago forever, which was much harder parking than LA, believe it or not. Uh, when I, I didn't know that you didn't do this, we used other people's bumpers as the how, to, how you knew you were, you, you were far enough. Just lightly touch their bumper. There you go. And then you're back. And that was what we did. That was normal. That was normal parking in Chicago. Your I, bumper is helping me know I can go as far as I can. I've done it. And unfortunately, the only times when it's been problematic is when there's an old guy in the car that I bump into. And then I, you know, I'm very good at apologizing. Yeah. Um, but I, I agree, LA. Actually, my experience of LA is parking is easy because it's so designed. You, I, I've never had trouble finding a parking spot anywhere in LA. There's a garage you can dump it in. There's meters. There's whatever. Um, Brooklyn, not designed for cars. Manhattan, really not. I mean, so, but LA, I remember I've been out there for work back when I was a professional actor and doing some other things. And if I was on, here's a good example. I, I found myself on Sunset Boulevard at like 530. And I was not moving. I literally couldn't move. And I just pulled over and went into like a, uh, it's the taco place with parrots on the toast part or something. Or, tacos. I don't know. I just, and I just said, screw it. I'm having an early dinner because I'm not going anywhere. You might. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, well, because I just couldn't see sitting in the car like that. But I'm not a Los Angelino. And uh, that's one of the reasons. Now with COVID, I hear that the roads have been pretty cool but again you're not in los angeles where where are you i don't i don't need a block or anything i'm in oh. central, central oh. california so i'm up north but my family's still down in la so i'm in la a lot God. yeah it's a lot, it's a lot lighter it, la's biggest problem was the random construction so like they'll just be like we're gonna just go down to one lane uh, okay i guess that's what we're doing huh so it's it was more of that it was always the rant and because Someplace like Chicago, which is kind of, you know, it's business is the business of Chicago. And so it's pretty much, you know, eight to five, it's going to be traffic. Outside of that, it's fine. LA just didn't have that. It was just this, you just didn't know. You were just on the road and all of a sudden at 11 a.m., you're like, oh yeah, there's a three hour pileup. I have no idea why. Uh, so it was just not consistent. So the motorcycle helped a lot. Uh, I love, the thing I love about New York is that I know five different ways to get somewhere. So, but you don't have that in some places. I think LA sometimes suffers. It's like, okay, I'm going to get to La Cienega instead. It's like, well, no, those are, it's either that or the one-on-one or whatever. It's like, no, nope, my two ways are done. I'm just, it. just screwed. It's over. You're just screwed. And then sometimes you take that other way and you just get in trouble. I love that you have a 2002 Camry that's all scratched up. I would say this to my friends. I said, the people who can afford nice cars that I know all drive very modest cars. I said, it's the people like me who can't afford nice cars who want to pretend like they can't afford them. And we have these cars that are too expensive for us. I'm that guy. I know I am. I got a car I shouldn't be driving. You know what I mean? And some, but the guys I know who should, can drive are like, nah, I'm good. I got this. This is fine. Uh, well, I, yeah, you know, I, uh, I, I gave away two houses as a result of two divorces. <laughs> I'm fortunate to be married to a smart woman who has a who got a really nice apartment many years before it was that nice a neighborhood. So now I have movie star neighbors in Brooklyn yeah. and um, I don't really drive that much anyway. Yeah. It's great for chucking groceries or something in the trunk. 
And I take the subway all the time. Even, I couldn't you know, imagine not taking the subway everywhere. I just, I think that would just be the only way to go. Yeah, you know, I, I'm not saying I'm among them, but millionaires ride the subway, movie stars ride the subway. I mean, it's just because it's the fastest, easiest, safest way to yeah. get around. And I know that'll shock people who aren't from New York, but um, as soon as all this, these things get back to normal, and I really do believe they will, um, people will see that, uh, but that's, you know, that goes to prejudices. And I, I, I'm kind of running low on time. So I want to kind of get to a really cool place to tie this up with a beautiful bow. Uh, you know, New Yorkers have prejudices about LA and LA and other people about New York, and people about Fresno. You know, my wife's from the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, all these places are great and all of them are terrible depending on what you choose and how you decide to live your life, right? I mean, so when, you know, you get up in the morning and you take a look at what your day is gonna be like, what, um, you obviously make choices. Yeah. I mean, I'd love it if you could share with people what, what choices you make and how you think that leads you to be a happy person. Because sure. I, I get the sense, I, I'm putting words in your mouth, but I'd say you're a happy person. I am. I really am. Uh, you know, part of it is so I'm big into mental health because I think, uh, you know, mind, body, soul. I love that stuff. I think that a lot of times uh, for health reasons, we pick one or two of those. And I just think that three of those really is. So um, it's funny, as I tell my, my wife's studying to get her master's in marriage family therapy right now. And uh, she did a paper on me, on my perspectives on uh, how we're created in God's image. So like, how are people creating God's image? And I said, it can't be anthropomorphism. It can't be because you have hand, God's spirit. So, they, so whenever people are like, we're creating God's image and they always go to the physical. I said, if, if, uh, if, you're, if you're Jewish or Christian, so in the Genesis it says, um, I use the plural when talking about creation, talking about God. So God's identifying himself in plural. In the New Testament, it says it's a trinity. It says Father, Son, and Spirit. So either way, there's a pluralism. But if you're and from the Christian perspective, you think it's a trinity. I said, I think how humans are creating God's image is that we're a trinity. That we have, in the New Testament, it says that the Bible is sharper than any two-edged swords, cutting through bone and marrow, soul and spirit. The word soul and spirit in the New Testament aren't the same word. The word soul is the word suke. It's where we get the word psychology, psyche. It's, uh, and it's, so you got a psyche. You have a mind, will, and emotion, right? Uh, soul is your pneuma. It's that force, that life force. I tell people this all the time. I said, even if you're not a Christian, you can tell the difference between a dead person and a live person, right? There's some sort of a life force in them that is no longer in them. And you can see somebody who's healthy minus a life force and some and with the life force. So you can just see there's some energy. And if you're a science person like I am, first law of thermodynamics is that energy is neither created nor destroyed, meaning that life force came from somewhere. It's in your body. It's going somewhere because it's not destroyed. I don't know where, like, so whatever you think for me, that's Christianity. So, so anyway, uh, so I, I, I take this perspective of, that I have a body, I have a soul, and I have a suke, I have a mind, will, and emotions. And so for me in the morning, I get up about 3.30, 4 a.m. every day, and, uh, and I always do some writing. But part of that journey as well is really just centering uh, my mind, will, and emotions on not just God, but that I'm loved. Like the premise of who God says, the Bible says God is love. Not that he does love, that he is love. 
And so part of the dynamic in my life, it sounds really weird, but I really think it's a, the core of uh, psychology and counseling is that it's hard to be good for others if you're not good with yourself. You know what I mean? Like, and so I yeah. start with, I'm loved. I start with, I'm good with me. I'm good with me. And when I find out that I'm good with me and I get to that place, it's really easier, not easy, easier to be good with others and to be good with the world, you know, cause I'm starting on the right foot every day is that I'm loved as opposed to if I started, I'm not loved. How dare you want me to be different so you can be loved? I love that. Yeah. You know, we are living in a culture now where there's a feeling like you are, you need to be picking on yourself. Not only is it just automatic that you're picking on yourself, but that somehow that's how you get ahead is yeah. you take a look at yourself, see what's wrong with you, and then go about fixing it as if any of that is accurate. Right. And I, I, you know, this is not how I usually talk on the podcast, but again, this is some of the work that I do for myself and in my life. You know, you can't live your life wrong, in my opinion. And to look back and look at anything as somehow you messed up and that you are bad and wrong is not a great place to start from. And I, I think you see a lot of people walking around working on themselves in their heads. And I love this idea that you brought forth earlier. It's like, hey, I'm here to be of service. That's, that's um, I'm looking for ways that I can make a difference, who I can help and, um, or support or whatever, uh, rather than working on me. And um, I like it. I, you know, Joe Basil, I'm so glad that I got a chance to talk to you today. This is not how I usually do things. And I'm glad because we did a creation together today. Yeah, it's fun. It was really uh, good. Um, what to expect. This was great. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, I, I look forward to seeing more from you. And who knows? We might be in touch again. I just have a feeling that might happen. I would love that. And when uh, I would love to have a reason to keep talking and hanging out. And I'll reach out as new projects come my way. Or you can reach out to me. But I'd love to kind of chat again. It was an honor. Uh, thank you so much. So wasn't that awesome and not at all what you might expect? Um, I just love meeting interesting people and seeing that the world is not black and white and that there are also so many awesome people in the world that uh, they don't often get the headlines, but they're doing amazing things and they're worth meeting and spending time with. So thank you for joining me for that. Um, if you have any interest in letting me know how you feel about anything, please reach out to me. Go to my website, isthatreallylegal.com. There's a place there where you can talk to me about anything, including Abe's muffins. And I hope that you get to enjoy those and that you get to talk to me about them. We're here every Monday. Um, we got more amazing guests coming up. If there's somebody you would like for me to interview, let me know that too. Or if you think maybe you personally are somebody I should be interviewing. I'm open. Uh, I hope you're doing well. Are you hanging in there? Uh, eat a muffin. Listen to the show. Hang in there. I look forward to speaking with you soon. Just thank you so much for joining me. We'll talk soon. Bye-bye.